Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. few hours together, but nothing ends. So I will just say a couple of words, and then I want to finish the last two sections that we haven't looked at yet. Um, Does that sound okay? Who's doing those two sections? If civilization offers new forms of communal emotional connection, other than those provided by the occasional televised war or celebrity funeral, it would seem to be a rather hollow business. We pay a high price for this emotional emptiness. Individually, we suffer from social isolation and depression, which, while usually not fatal on their own, are risk factors for cardiovascular and a host of other diseases. Collectively, we have trouble coming to terms with our situation, which grows more ominous every day. Half the world's people live in debilitating poverty. Epidemics devastate whole nations. The ice caps melt. Natural disasters multiply. And we remain, for the most part, paralyzed, lacking the means to organize. In fact, the notion of the collective or the common good has been eroded by the self-serving agendas of the powerful. We have entertainment in the form of movies, iPods delivering music for solitary enjoyment, computer games, and possibly coming soon experiences in virtual reality. We have drugs, legal and illegal, to lift the depression calm the anxiety, bolster our self-confidence. It's a measure of our general deprivation that the most common referent for ecstasy in use today is not an experience, but a drug, MDMA, that offers fleeting feelings of euphoria and connectedness. 
These compensatory pleasures do not satisfy our longings. Anyone who can resist addiction to consumer culture, entertainment, and the drugs that are arriving sooner or later at the conclusion of something is missing. What might be hard is to pin what might, what that might be is hard to pin down and finds expression in vague formulations such as spirituality or community. Vague formulations like spirituality or community. Uh, this was a excerpt from the book I was talking about earlier called Dancing in the Streets, a uh, history of collective joy. Um, vague formulations of spirituality and community. I want to link this up with the first quote that we started our week off, which is that in the contemplative life, there is a tendency to dabble around making itsy-bitsy statues. Where we have superficial ideas of community and intimacy and spirituality and joy. Superficial ideas. And I hope over the week what we've explored is how individually and collectively we can come together to practice in such a way that allows intimacy to unfold. Because intimacy is always unfolding, as opposed to getting in the way and stopping that process because we are caught up in the samsara hala hala, the poisonous herb of meaninglessness that we've all swallowed. And it's not enough to just work with your own greed, hatred, and delusion. It's not enough. Because you can work with your own greed, hatred, and delusion, and then you can unconsciously support institutionalized forms of greed, hatred, and delusion. So there has to be a way of thinking through the way that we institutionalize these same things that we think of are just inside me. Because then we're making this false distinction between my private enlightenment and uh, what the world's doing. And that's a cult. The world is against, against us. As opposed to this world is me. If I have an immune system, then I trust that ecology also functions with an immune system. That a forest fire, post-forest, when you go to an area where there's a forest fire, there's so much growth there. In Ontario, we have trees called jack pines. And the cones on jack pines, if you know those cones, are so dense. And they only open at 300 degrees. That's how they open. So forest fires are a naturally occurring phenomenon to help a system regenerate. And one thing we know from science, is in systems theory, is that a healthy system is a system that breaks down. And when it breaks down, 
it reorganizes itself and then there's life there so break down a computer is not considered good system because when a computer breaks down it can't reorganize itself a forest is a healthy system a human body is a healthy system so to trust in this natural intimacy that's that is yoga that is yoga and not only that there's intimacy but intimacy has intelligence how things are interconnected is beyond our comprehension so don't try to fill your emptiness because it's the fact that the self is groundless that is the ground it's the fact that the self has no inherent substantiality which from the perspective of the ego feels scary so we try to fill it up we try to fill up the lack but actually when you stop filling it up that lack is intimacy that lack is what connects us with everything because we lack a substantial self these teachings suggest that our dukkha ultimately derive from a repression more immediate than the fear of death which is the suspicion that i am not real the ego is not a self-existing consciousness but a very fragile sense of self that suspects and dreads its own nothingness david boy writes this form of suffering motivates our conditioned consciousness to try to ground itself that is i want to make myself real but since the sense of self is a construct however it can realize realize itself or rather try to realize itself only by objectifying itself which then secures itself as an object in the world and that makes the ego self a never ending project to objectify itself in some way something that unfortunately our conditioned ever changing consciousness cannot do any more than a hand can grasp itself or an eye see itself the consequence of this perceptual failure is the sense of self is shadowed by a sense of lack these teachings shift our focus from the terror of death to the anguish of a groundlessness experienced here and now the problem is not that we will die but that we do not feel real now david boy the problem is not the fear of a death because then you're objectifying the death the ego self death 
the problem is that we don't feel real now and we project that onto death. And then our joys feel a bit superficial because when they happen, we objectify them through this ego self. Does this make sense? And this is what Patanjali is going over and over again in the fourth chapter of the Yoga Sutra. Saying it isn't amazing how these vast array, this vast array <coughs> of perception begins to feel like an individual self in space and time. As opposed to this distinct array of perception being these arrays of perception. Being here with what's happening moment to moment to moment, impeccable attention. And then we have togetherness. And then we have renunciation. Because what are we renouncing? We're renouncing the craving and the grasping, which is the method that we use to fill the lack. And we were talking earlier about Bernie Glassman's comment about the hungry ghosts. They're always hungry. You can't satisfy them. In other words, the lack's always there. Because the self is empty of image. Inherently, there's no self-image. That's what svarupa shunya, empty of self-image, empty of self-form. Representing ourselves to ourselves, constantly checking and rechecking ourselves. Self-consciousness is the enemy of um, togetherness. The enemy of togetherness. Ambition is the enemy of togetherness. Accumulating is the enemy of togetherness. Violence, dishonesty, stealing, using energy unwisely, and being greedy. These are the enemies of togetherness. So you have a moral obligation to the culture to practice. You have an ethical obligation to find joy in community. And how do you find joy in community? To see that everything is community. Like when they chant in Zen, I vow, I vow to say, oh, what sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Do you know how you save all sentient beings? You see that there are no other sentient beings. That there are no other sentient beings. To see that when the earth is raped, you are raped. To see that when water is being polluted, you are being polluted. The world is your lover, not the honeymoon lover. 
Don't get stuck in the dry spot with the earth. Visit a tree. You know, there was a movement in India where they were practicing nonviolence to trees. And some of the women who were trying to save these trees didn't know what to do. So they just started hugging them. And that's where we get this word tree hugger. You know? Tree hugger was not some planned form of activism. It's like the people did not know what to do. These women didn't know what to their trees were being cut down. So they just started hugging them. When was the last time you hugged a tree? When was the last time you yeah. When was the last time you made out with a tree? Are you lonely? Go find a tree. Go sit with a tree. Like look at a tree. Go find the closest river to your house and get to know that river. Like when people say, I don't know what to do. You know, go find a river. Look in that river and look at the quality of that river. Look at the river in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Look at the Don River. If you go look at the Don River, you will see, right now, actually, right at Richmond Street, huge beaver dams. Huge beaver dams filled with pop dams. So if you want to know what to do, look around, open your eyes. Don't get numbed out by the media. And this is our practice. So simple. So simple. And so, you can't just operate collectively, saying social change is going to happen out there when I manipulate this and this and this. You have to change in your heart. And you have to work with your capacity for greed. We're all so greedy. We want to accumulate and we're angry. I know I have to work with my anger. I have to work with my greed. I have to work with my delusion. And I do it on this cushion. And I do it on this yoga mat. And I do it at home. With our son, Michelle, and so on. And I do it with my, my friends. And when you do that, that's a form of social action. That's a form of ecological action. And then suddenly, your meditation practice is a form of social action. Because you're not adding to those samskaras in the culture. Because you are honest about how you're doing the same thing. A wonderful... Um, scholar and someone who I admire a lot, Christopher Chappell, told me a great story about Gandhi's, uh, like Gandhi's grandson told him. Um, a mother took her son to visit Gandhi 
and said, my son's been eating so much sugar. (laughs) And will you ask him to stop? And um, Gandhi said, you know, come back in a couple of weeks. And uh, she went away for a couple of weeks, and then she brought him back. He said, um, you've got to stop eating sugar. (laughs) And then the mother said, well, why did it take so long for you to say stop eating sugar? And he said, well, because I had to first. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I said a couple days ago, like yoga comes through you. Not all these books. Who reads them anyway? That's not how yoga passes. Yoga passes along through your life. Or you could say it another way, which is that your life is unfolding. Your life is unfolding. Don't miss it. Don't drift. Don't miss it because of your anger. Don't miss it because of your greed. Don't miss it because this object self that you've created is hungry. It can't be satisfied. It can't be satisfied. This practice is not going to satisfy it. Does this make sense? Like this practice is not going to stop your desires. The only thing it can stop is the intensity of your craving, but it can't end your desire. This, this is, desire is this, like this. I desire this. What's this called? Baton. (laughs) I desire this baton, and this is craving. This is craving. And the more you crave, the harder it is to let go of this. Remember we were talking about that? If I let go a little and I pulled this out, my hand would not go back to the position it was in. Desire is not bad. Desire is not bad. Craving is the problem. You see? Craving is the problem. And what you start to see when you let go of craving is that desire, as a universal phenomenon, loves desire. And so the more you're desirous, the more there's desire. So desire is fine if you see that it can't be satisfied. The hungry ghosts can't be satisfied. So stop trying to satisfy. And then you know what the byproduct is of renunciation? Contentment. (laughs) Suddenly you're satisfied because there's no more craving. And craving happens in two ways, of course. It's not just craving, but it's filling. Right? It's not like just going out and finding. It's taking what you find and filling. But the thing that you're filling is bottomless because it's ecology. Right? Like the lack is yoga. 
the, the lack in the sense of self is because the sense of self is because the self is actually everything. And the lack is only felt when you try and make it something. And then we can participate in collective joy. So if anybody has anything to say, maybe we can talk for only about five minutes and then two of you can present um, what you spent all week preparing (laughs) (laughs) for this closing session, which is so important to all of us. (laughs) Yeah. Um, when you talk about this lack, it kind of reminded me of um, studying literature and you know dealing with what's generally called the human condition. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to know what that is, but I had a good instant of knowing what that was. Because mm. that's probably what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a great word, isn't it? The human condition. Mm-hmm. Like as soon as you talk about the human condition, you're talking about conditions. And everything is conditions, right? That's, these are the conditions, you know. And the problem is, is that we've been screwing up our environment, killing our environment because of human conditions. And that's why the deep ecologists keep telling us that until you see that the human is not the most important part of the equation, then your environmentalism is useless. (coughs) It's just protecting little pieces of this and that for you. Until you really see that the tree has the same right to live that you do, then you get ecology. Then you get... And I would say that deep ecology is probably the most... Um, integrated form of non-dualism we've come up with in Western philosophy. And of course, those of you who don't know the deep ecology movement, you know, go read Arnie Ness. And um, he lists, I think it's nine factors. On my website, there's a little article that Yoga and Deep Ecology, where, where you can see those that list. Um, Ecology means interdependence. So if you do your environmental movement and you fall under this ridiculous idea of sustainability, sustainable? Sustainable for whom? Like this term, sustainable architecture. Like, can't we get one step beyond sustainable for my desire and move into deep ecology, interdependence yoga. Do you know what profession in North America has the least number of women? Architecture. 13% in Canada, 18% in the US. The lowest percentage of women. Do you know that in 
uh, university architecture courses, the split between genders is 50-50. But out in the world, there aren't women architects. I mean, name two famous women architects. North American. Oh, good for you guys. <laughs> but I bet you could name ten men. So what are their names? The men? The women. Oh, the women? Yeah. Oh, like, I know Julia Morgan. Yeah, that's yeah. the one I know. And I'll know the female writer, the Tory, the other man. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, so, do we see this in our building a little bit, maybe, too? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going to say something? No, I was just thinking of Susanka. Hmm. So, the point here is that everything, our architecture, you know, our sidewalks, our communities, this is all integrated all integrated. Like, what would happen if when it was time for an election, the first question you asked your politician was, what do you think is beautiful? You know, like, what's beautiful? What are your ideas about, tell me what's beautiful in the city. What do you think is the most beautiful? How are you going to contribute to making this environment beautiful? That, we're not allowed to talk about that. That's superficial. So to sum up, greed, hatred, and delusion keep our negative habits of karma operating. But don't think that those negative habits are just in me because they're in the culture. And then we can do our practice with a seamless integration of individual and collective. Because a spirituality that's focused on my emancipation is misguided unless it's concerned with a culture of awakening. Not individual awakening, but a culture of awakening. And you all have it in you. I can see you're ready to go. (laughs) Ready to get in the car and go.